The Book Thinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and the floppies. This is episode 28, featuring Charles Stan in Metro Manila. Book Thinger would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced and pay respects to their elders, both past and present. Welcome to the Book Thinger podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thinger podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thinger podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthinger.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. In this episode, I finally get to meet a longtime Twitter friend, Charles Tan. Charles is super active in the world of speculative fiction, so in this podcast, we focus more on spec fic rather than romance. We have a very interesting discussion on the structural barriers that prevent Filipino stories from being more accessible. Throughout the interview, Charles explains and talks about a variety of creatures from Filipino mythology. If you're not familiar with any of these creatures, I think you'll find them fascinating. You can find information on all the books we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 28. A lot of Filipinos, you know, because we're we're the subject of uh, imperialism, so obviously a lot of what gets imported, uh, we read a lot like uh, Wheel of Time, Harry Potter, etc., etc. But before 2005, no one was really pushing for fantasy or science fiction, at least in the local scene, uh, to the point that I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Palanca Awards, yeah. which is one of the most prestigious awards. Dean Francis Alfar, who's, a, at, who's at the time like five-time or six-time Palanca Award, he's now on his 10th or, or more, he decided that, you know, because he loves science fiction and fantasy, so let's, let's push for uh, local writings on science fiction and, and fantasy. And then to make it inclusive to encompass science fiction, fantasy, and horror, he called it speculative fiction. That stuck, and you know he started producing anthologies and started writing, and you know, and because he started also winning awards, so they, they had no choice but to accept it. Also during this period, actually horror was also catching up, so there was a lot of pop horror books. Like and there was actually a series like you know, Philippine ghost stories, but that eventually. Uh, it, it it was a fad, so eventually faded. So yeah, but but that's mostly uh, the scene here. So I think really it's fair to say like, you know, majority of Filipinos love reading international science fiction, like or rather the ones published in the U.S. or in, in the U.K., like Game of Thrones, uh, Lord of the Rings. But for local, it's really just a small market. Like the print run of most books tends to be like a thousand or two thousand, which okay. is uh, yeah, or published by smaller presses. Like like Philippine speculative fiction, the anthology series, it was self-published by Dean. And then right now he has a few anthologies published by UP Press, and then in his own collections by by Andal. But again, I said the print runs are, are re- relatively small. So who reads speculative fiction in the Philippines? Well, uh, international obviously I think uh, a lot of people, especially with you know Game of Thrones being popular, or, you know ever since uh, Lord of the Rings. Or even a uh, Harry Potter. With regards to local ones, you know, I think it's a small, small community. Although there are a lot of uh, young readers, but I say that because publishing in the Philippines tends to focus mostly on Metro Manila, and that's also the distribution system at work where we're an archipelago. So I think if I say the term speculative fiction or 
most people wouldn't understand what what that is or even like for most people it's not really something that is there a particular form that's favored so is it mostly books is it mostly comics is it graphic novels in, in Iliscon I can talk about books uh, because I think comics has always been relatively popular like you have Trece so there when when you know we just read as comics so I think those comics or even Raja Saturna I don't know if you're familiar with that for me comics has always used the throws of either fantasy or science fiction because sometimes they're trying to mimic what came from the west and like superheroes is basically a power fantasy or or science fiction if, if that uh, that's your type a comics cheaper in terms of the form of literature i mean i don't i don't have a sense of how much they cost as opposed to like a book or a movie even no uh, the problem with with comics it's at least the industry changed like before they were selling what you call floppies or you know the one that is yeah. like um, magazines so right now i think that's mostly gone unless it's like propaganda oh, really? material for like the elections really I oh, 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 oh no, no uh during elections actually comics is one of the best propaganda tools it might not be circulated in metro manila at least for the past almost two decades. It's so why is it that the comics, the mass market comics have disappeared, do you think? Uh, there's uh, there's several theories, in, uh, like, because at the time before, it, it was the only method of consumption. Now there are, like, other methods, yeah. Okay. But this is for the floppies. So every year, though, we have what we call Comic-Con, which is a convention. So that's usually when the indie creators release their own comics. But aside from that, uh, there's actually a distribution problem with the comics that's why there's no like the, the single issues anymore unprofitable what instead we have our graphic novels which are the ones that, that take on book form or which are compiled so but then do they reach the same people the thing with the floppies before they were really for the mass market before like you'd have in classics like uh captain barbell or, or darna or even Fighter with us, a tribute to Street Fighter. But now we you don't have those anymore. Instead, you have pure floppies, you only come out to see on Comic Con. Or you have okay. the ones, the graphic novels, which is picked up by local publishers and then released in national bookstore, etc. But for me, those are different markets and different purchasing power. I think the most popular one right now is like Trece. So each graphic novel is comprised of four issues, so that's around each issue is around 20 plus pages it's around 100 pages and it's gonna cost around 200 to 200 pesos so i think those are different markets so when i think of for example fantasy yeah. so the mythologies we read about in the mainstream of the genre is largely preoccupied with western myths and legends yeah. so even when they incorporate other types of worlds those mm -hmm. worlds tend to be othered even other types of people i guess mm -hmm. so why do you think Philippine mythology isn't more popular overseas, given that there are so many Filipinos who live overseas? Yeah, as I said, we're the subject of imperialism. So right now, there's this focus or how the West is the center. Like, even right now, we're speaking English. Right. So that's a mode of communication. And then, even at a young age, we were taught Greek myth. Like, as, as part of English class, yeah, Greek myths were, like, taught to us. But... There's really no class that taught us around uh, Filipino myths. Instead, Filipino myths were really the product of what we call low art. Uh, like before, in, in the 80s, there was this popular movie anthology, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, that really popularized the concept of the what we call aswang. Although if you study our myths, uh, technically that's a mananangal. Aswang is a more generic term 
So in in some areas, emanenanggal can be an aswang, but in different parts, an aswang is something else entirely different. That in itself is already an adaptation. And also because we're an oral-based country, or at least our our traditions are oral-based. So yeah, so you have the, these different traditions, which is now we we could call it corrupted, but you know it's it's very different. Uh, but that's different from why it hasn't caught up uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, mainly, I think because. It's like this. When we're talking about publishing, it, it's not a two-way street. If you're published in the US and the UK, you'll get published everywhere else. But if you like publish a book in the Philippines or even publish a book in Australia or Singapore, it won't reach it won't reach the world. Most likely, it'll only be circulated in the country you're in. I think in Australia, for example, Sarah Douglas was the first breakout fantasy author, but uh, those tend to be the exceptions rather than the norm. So, but even the awareness of Philippine mythology, it's just not there. Even for myself, who I was born here, why do we not tell those stories more? Is it just because they're considered low art that they're sort of fables for children? Uh, for, well, for instance, even fa- fables for children, because at least fables for children would be taught to actual children. But if you're talking about here, for example, uh, like I learned Greek myths via education system. And the education system really hasn't really. So there's no systemic way that we we learn about our own mythology. Is that what it is? That that's uh, yeah uh, okay. Uh, usually because it's really uh, like a complicated problem. Uh, like like traffic. There's no one. No no. When whenever someone oh I have a solution for solving traffic and right. then they only give one solution. It's not one variable. There are s- several variables. So one you can look at how we don't have a systemic way of propagating it through our education system. Two actually it's also our. Uh, partially our, our, our regions because as I said Aswang will might have different meanings or different interpretations in each region so each region will have their own variations on this story and in those regions they, they do tell those stories I'm, I'm sure in some areas they do tell it to kids but both of us we both grew up here in, in Manila so no one tells us this story unless it's becomes adapted into movies so I think there's but, that and there's, it's not codified so therefore you can't get it other than through the oral yeah and and, and again because we're we're built on oral tradition so we have all these variations uh, I mean those are the two biggest one and then three the fact that it's not codified means how do we teach it although right now there's a new illustrated book by Summit Media so it showcases the various mythological features of of us, so I don't know how that will fare. And then fourth, you know, I think there's been this this curiosity worldwide about uh, our teachers, but mostly I think the two most common ones would be the Aswang, and pro- the second one would probably be the Chanak. But outside of those, there's really uh, little awareness. Even here, that's why books like those, the one I said by Summit, or at least are a treat for me to find. Even UP Press actually has this series of books on mythology, but they're expensive. And honestly, they're not, at least for me, they're not that well written. They're really like going, it's an, like an oral tradition and getting an informal story about uh, these, these creatures. So it's both our advantage that we have this diversity of stories, and it's also our being that we all have all these variants. Yeah, but I think the reason for that also it's because there's no one central authority to con- consolidate and say this is the official version. Like I'm sure with Greek myths, there were there are different versions or even Norse myths. There are all these variations, but at the end of the day, someone will say this is the official story, or even uh, like like uh, a canon. Yeah, or, or even like 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 Robin Hood. 
like those were actual legends at the time and then depending on who told it some would make the sheriff the the hero and then the other one would be robin hood but uh the winners write history so eventually they codify that okay we decree robin hood is the the single one and then actually there was before at least regarding our myths there was a study on you know, it's it's colonialism effects like the ones who at the time because we were colonized by, by the spanish so uh, as you know co- uh, conservative christian values were enforced upon us so they see an independent woman living out alone then one way to ostracize her would be to condemn her oh she's an aswang or she's a mangukulam you know or she's a witch that's why she's independent that's why she doesn't need the company of men that's why she's powerful so there's also that that element of how our own myths were used against us so what are some of your favorite filipino myths and stories or creatures from mythology well, well for me like there's the legend of maria makiling uh, have you heard of her i have yeah so for, for me that's a that's an interesting that we that at that yeah because there's this mountain mount makiling so there's a story about how it's guarded by by Maria Makiling, and then depending on which story, she she might help you or she might harm you, and then even the contents of that is different. Like one, she's a spurned lover, or one, she's a sigi, uh, a spirit. Uh, that's one. Uh, a more urban story story would be uh, the white lady. The white lady. Yeah, is and the then one that I knew most as a child. Yeah, and and then for me, I think that's the most urban one because. One of the most popular ones is the white lady in Balete Street, and it should be in your area in in Quezon City. <laughs> There's this urban street where it's rumored to be have a white lady, and then and then the joke is that there was this uh, taxi driver. Then he look at the rearview mirror, and then he sees the white lady like far off, and then he looks back, and then she's already at the passenger side, and then later on. He looks forward and she sees him ahead of him, so she was just trying to to outrun the the the, the taxi along <laughs> along a uh, Balete Drive. Yeah. But I I remember as a child, even though I knew it was not real, there was a part of me that felt like maybe the white lady could exist. And same with uh, you know the Nunu Sapunso, yeah. Which I think if I have my myths right, that's the one where uh, if you step on their home underground, yeah. Uh, you would get lost until you kind of apologize or you yeah yeah that's why yeah that's why normally you say at a po uh, yeah before uh, entering which uh, I I mean area. I mean logically I knew that that was not real but as a child it was very real to me like it felt like okay yeah maybe this this might be true so I find it interesting that we we lose the myths as we get older like they they seem to be stories of childhood. And they, we don't retain them. Uh, well, actually, again, it depends on on the area. Uh, uh, because of course, some of her myths are what they call syncretism when it's combined with governing a religion. So there are like it, it depends. Like in, in some in some areas, because of imperialism, we say we are rational, so we should eschew that. But uh, honestly, my experience is like like some people play. Uh, play it safe that they might say okay I'm not superstitious but I'll say tabipot here but just in case yeah or for example you have a sickness and then okay we'll, we'll see a doctor but just in case we'll, we'll also consult a, a faith healer or, or even for me because I'm coming from Chinese background so we still practice a feng shui or or ghost month I, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with, uh, because we have a tradition like there's this month where ghosts roam for an entire month so during that that time period, you shouldn't start a new business or move to a new house, uh, etc. Et, et 
Okay. Yeah. So for me, it, it's really like it's really the Western upbringing that eschews those traditions. Like if you go to the Chinese, will honor those traditions. Uh, but for me, in the Philippines, it, it's a mix of both. Or yeah, so some people uh, play it safe. So it's I wouldn't say it disappears, but it's also dependent on the regions that you're visiting. I think in in some of the more provincial areas or some of the more rural areas, I think those beliefs are still strong or they're, they're like we even have areas where our, uh, our national hero Jose Rizal is, is oh. mythologized yeah like so in what way these guys will rise again oh, or he'll, really? yeah or he'll one day save us or they, oh. they really pass magical powers uh, like a saint so so it really depends on which region I think when we're saying saying these conclusions we're really talking about Manila. I think, well, yeah, I, yeah. I definitely am because I yeah, yeah. have never known life in the regional areas. Yeah, and, and n- neither have I. But but, but you hear uh, uh, these stories or like if you go to, you know, some people in Dumaguete, so that they say, oh, yeah. hey, where, where the aswangs are. But, you know, so. so Dumaguete is like the place that's supposed to be the most haunted or something in the Philippines. Like there's an island that I've heard that... They, they said that there's an island, but I wouldn't say it, it's, it's the most uh, haunted. Normally, like, like Capis or, or I know, it's where, where the, 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 the songs come from. It's, it's more like, yeah. Because each region will have their like... Favorite myth, I guess. Yeah, or, 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 yeah or, 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 or where it originates from. Yeah. yeah. So I read an interview you did with Tor a couple of years ago where you talk about some of the systemic barriers faced by local authors or by stories that feature Filipino settings or characters. Yeah. So in 2016 now, are authors still facing the same barriers and what are the most difficult to get past? As I said before, publishing isn't uh, uh, two ways. It's, it's the easier. Yeah. Stuff. If you get published here, the rest of the world most likely won't Is that you. Has the internet helped that or has it not? Oh, of course. I, I think the, the internet has helped, but there's this, because it's systemic, we're not conscious of it. For example, Wikipedia, we know it's open content, and you think the distribution of contributors there would be equal, but it's not. 90% of the editors are men, and that's again because of systemic bias. So in the start, when it was less dominated by that, but because patriarchy is the status quo, so eventually it reached that uh, 90. Equilibrium, I guess. Yeah, that, 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 that 90%, and that's also the case for, for open source. For publishing uh, right now, that's really the case. Like. Like usually, like there's just this one person of color or or one author of this marginalized people, and then I mean, for example, uh, you're you're in the Roman scene, though. Uh, name me a popular, at least mass market romance author that that's not that's not white, for example. I I mean I can, but because I deliberately looked for them. Yeah. So I probably probably if you'd asked oh, yeah, me but, but, three but, years ago, I would have said no. Yeah, but but look look at the uh, look at the proportion. Yeah, no, definitely the proportion is is yeah. skewed. Yeah, and then uh, right now I I know, at least in science fiction fantasy I know of two Philippine authors published in the U.S. David Ramirez published oh, yeah. by by Tor uh, by Tor. Yeah, but look, this book that doesn't really have a Filipino Philippine element. He said he wanted to, but they said maybe in the next book, but but like not prove in, yourself not, first not, and not, then yeah, okay. Then you have Rin Chupeco, who actually has two YA novels out. Uh, the first one is Girl in the Well, and I forget the name of the sequel. But she's also coming out with a new YA book uh, next year. So at least the first two ones were published by Source Books. But even those, when she's writing, it's really not about a Philippines, about set in a different country. So on one hand, that's good because it's a Philippine writer who doesn't have to write about the Philippines. Uh, we shouldn't 
downplay that that valuable part. But but you know, aside from that, uh, it's really difficult for Filipino authors to get published uh, in the U.S. And then also a look at the content of their writing. Are they talking about U.S. concerns or are they talking about Filipino concerns? And then some are saying uh, there might not be a market for it. Perhaps the other concern also there is like when you talk about books, we're talking about novels. Right now, we really, really favor uh, short stories, both because we grew up with short stories. When you say we, this is the Filipino market? Probably it's it's more fa- fair to say the uh, Filipino writers. Okay. Yeah, like we, we we write short. I mean, you even read Mina's books, and they, they, they even even in romance, relatively the Filipino romances are shorter than yeah yeah uh, because uh, one you know we really grew up with 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 short stories too, and we really don't have the luxury of time to write a long novels. Most novels. At least in the U.S. right now, the average is like 200,000 words, and but us we could barely get 50,000 to 100,000 words. So there's also that factor, and like if we come out with a collection of short stories, it's really not gonna sell as well as as novels, uh, because here or overseas. I, I think both. Okay. Because again, we're influenced by what sells uh, overseas. Maybe romance is the exception. I don't know if short stories. Individual short stories no like almost no short stories in romance. It's really difficult because it's really hard to sell a romance that's short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's my point. Like the, the Western market has really focused on novels that have been getting thicker and, and thicker. I mean, they were short before and during the pulp era, where pocket books literally could fit uh, in your pocket. But now the trend has been going thicker and thicker. So you ha- you have that that bias, and then again. Short stories, at least collections or anthologies, it's like they they don't sell well, and then so, so market they get picked up overseas. Yeah, I mean sometimes they at least those books, they they do get picked up, but it it doesn't uh, sell well. Well, because the other thing I I assume here the reason why the books are shorter is so that they can get it to a price point that they can sell to the mass market, right? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, there's that aspect. But but one, it's it's actually gonna sell to the mass market because again, mass market would be like Bob Ong who has gone through like two hundred or maybe even two million copies. But even the publisher didn't print it in that quantity. They most likely made it in like two thousand, three thousand copies, and then reprint, reprint, reprint. Uh, but also it's really, uh, the 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 content right now. I know two writers who are very prolific. One is Mina. And her, yeah, her output are, are e-books. But if you notice, they still tend to be short. Another would be Eliza Victoria, but Eliza Victoria is, is more of a short story writer who's, who right now is more going into novellas and uh, novelettes. So I think it's also we don't have that content to fill uh, those numbers. Yeah, so yeah. so we don't have yet that industry of writing uh, lengthier books. Yeah, and and I think the other big difference is like. If you're a Western writer, you write because you think you can can make a living out of it, no matter how un- unlikely that is. Here, people are just happy to be printed. Print is highly valued, perhaps more so than online. That's why you have Wattpad authors getting picked up by local publishers, and then in general, getting a, a bad bad deal. Well, let's talk about that because when I first discovered Wattpad, it was through a romance podcast, and. The only reason I really checked it out properly was because they said it was so huge in the Philippines. And I was like, 
how come I've never heard of it? That was kind of the start of me going, there's a romance market in the Philippines that, I, yeah. that didn't exist before the last time I checked. Uh, oh, no, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, romance has actually always been popular here. No, but I mean the romance genre type of books that I look for. Because I, I remember um, I asked, it would have been a few years ago for a recommendation. Mm -hmm. and I think only Mina's name came up. And even when I looked at her body of work, the characteristic of Filipino romance was different enough that I wasn't sure if I was going to get a happy ending. So I actually didn't read them at the time because I was like, I'm not sure that this is really the romance that I was talking about. And it's only now that there's a bigger body of work in romance that I can go, oh, okay, I can read more than one author and more than one book and see patterns to the market. Yeah, uh, because your romance, we have... We have like Matches Pages, it's a romance publisher, so they're more going of the Mills and Boons type. Oh, this is the Tagalog romance. Yes. Yeah, okay, so uh, yeah, so you're right, and I've tried to read those, but I find them, I, I think I just can't read Tagalog anymore. Like, okay. I just, the language is no longer, um, my brain just doesn't process it in print okay. very well, because also the language in print in Tagalog romance is not conversational. Uh, not, no, the, the problem with Tagalog, it's because we're multi-syllabic. So, in a way, it's, it's harder to read it because it, it, the words appear uh, longer. So, it's, it might be good for poetry because you have this rhyme of repetition. Yeah, but when I'm transcribing interviews, if it's like Filipino, like, oh, oh God, yeah. But, no, because there's m many syllables, so you're, you're jumping between vowels. But I think it's vowels. also the language. Like, be because I haven't lived in the Philippines for, for almost 30 years, it's like I'm reading a language, a, a foreign language that I understand, but it's like work. Hmm. And when I read romance, I don't read it to work as yeah, a reader. You I want read it, it as, as pleasure, yeah. Yeah, and as seamless as possible. And I don't find that Tagalog in the Pinoy romance, at least the last time I checked, it could be different now, I yeah. don't find it conversational. Okay. So I can actually speak Tagalog conversationally, yeah. but any deeper than that, yeah. and I'm like, too much. I yeah. need a dictionary. Yeah, yeah, and like, the early thousands, uh, Summit Media, which is a big magazine publisher, they actually had a line of new adult uh, fiction, although it wasn't called new adult back then. I, and I think Mina was one like of the their... Like the chiclet. Yeah, uh, sorry, stuff. sorry, uh, ch chiclet, sorry. That, that's a term. Lisa chiclet. And then one of the reasons they went with that for a... You know, because as magazine publishers, they have a better discounted rate on bookstores. So th there was that space when chiclet was, was popular. And did that intersect with their magazine audience? Were they I, I for young so. women as well, the magazines? Uh, their magazines, they're, they, they're published everywhere, I think. Oh. Yeah, like you have something like Esquire, and then, but their bestsellers are like FHM, which is sex. Then you have Yes Magazine, which is showbiz. So but celebrities they, they, and smart. <laughs> I, no, yeah, I mean, they publish everything. So going back to the Wattpad stories yeah. that got translated into print and some of them got turned into movies yeah. and I think there's a TV show now, that, that TV series that sort of Wattpad inspired. So on the face of it, that looks like, wow, online stories, serialized stories, getting print runs for very young authors. But what's the reality of some of those deals? Like, are they... Are they good deals for the authors, for the writers? It, it, it depends on the publishing company. Uh, the problem is like there are some publishing companies ask for the copyright. They're, they're not saying just the publishing rights, they're actually copyright. So, so it's like you became work for hire even though that's not really what you started with. Yeah, so the, the, the authors might just get a lump sum or a small royalty and then it's the publishing company who earns from all these possible adaptations, etc. Et that's the worst case scenario. 
But is that a common scenario or is that? It's to the point, okay, like, like this one publisher, them, they redesigned their concept business models to be acquired these properties so that you don't, you don't just have books, but it can eventually be turned into movies or, or, or TV series. I mean, is that, and is Wattpad still that popular now? Or is uh, that plateauing? I don't have stats, but uh, like two or three years ago, it, the Philippines was the second most popular country using Wattpad. I think the first was America. So I think that's really the case. But for me, it's like fanfic.net. Wattpad is basically the new fanfic.net. In fact, some so some people do post fanfics on, on, on Wattpad. I mean, I find interesting in Wattpad the fact that a lot of the Filipino stories there are in either in Tagalog or in Taglish. The fact that they're so popular, is it because that they're just, they just have a lot of Filipino readers on Wattpad as well? Uh, yes, uh, of course. I think Filipinos are voracious readers. They, they, they just, they're literate, but not literate in the sense that they read what the literary community might want them to read. And that's why I said, uh, Pinoy romance is, is popular. Now, if you're writing a Tagalog romance on the internet for free, then you will have readers. And even even before Wattpad, you had fanfiction.net, although our handles there were more anonymous, so you might not know you're actually reading a fic by a Filipino uh, author. Here now, it's a bit more transparent. It's also not limited to fanfiction, so there's a lot of things there that can be commercialized or, or IP that can be uh, exploited or, or opportunity. Do you get a sense of whether or not the print runs are successful? I know they're doing well, but I don't know how well. But a lot of the ones that get published, uh, either way, tends to be romance. Yep. So I think they're, they're doing good. Because the problem there, it's like, it's really just, just that one genre. I mean, there might be specific there, but they're not the type that it gets the millions uh, of readers. Normally, it's really limited to like romance or maybe even erotica. But if you look like other genres, like it, I, I, don't, I don't think I've seen a popular crime Wattpad novel or a popular literary novel or even a popular horror or, yeah, or science fiction. Do, are there, have there been any Wattpad authors that have broken out into mainstream? And when I say mainstream, I mean mainstream local publishing. Like a lot of them are known by their Wattpad names and then they're sort of author names yeah. that sound yeah, like actual it. people yeah i don't know what they are like that's not how they're known as so are there is is there anyone who's made that transition transition successfully yeah uh, well uh, to qualify i i'm not that really familiar uh, w with that scene so i guess because it's mostly romance as well right yeah so uh, i think mina monitors it uh, better than i do so also i don't think there's really a wattpad others like broken out into mainstream unless it's like been adapted into a but even then, movie. I mean, I was looking at the, I think you were the one who sent me the link of the list of Wattpad stories that have been translated to films. And even then, most of the authors are listed by their Wattpad handles, not really by their yeah. author names. Or if I look at it, it's a Wattpad handle that is recognizable, not the author name. Yeah. I was just curious to see if anybody has made a career transition yeah, just based on Wattpad. Yeah, right now, I don't think so. Okay. And, and they also might be trapped by their contract. Because the worst of contracts I've seen, not only does the author have the copyright, anything else you'll write in the future, they have the right of first refusal. Okay, 
Let's talk about copyright and piracy. Okay. So you've been following the Australian debate on parallel import restrictions. I think you might even know more about it than I do. I'm familiar uh, with it because is it good or bad really depends on your perspective and what you think the future is. Right now, you know, books they are more expensive than than buying it abroad because uh, here's the rule. In general, if for example, we have a book, let's say, uh, just uh, for the sake of example, Harry Potter, and then if a local publisher picks it up, then the local bookstores can't uh, import the foreign ones. They can only buy the books from the local yeah. publisher. Now, now there are two exceptions to that. One, it's within 30 days of the release of the book, there must be a local publisher who bought the rights to it. If not, then you can import like crazy. Uh, that's one. And the, the, the second exception is the, I think, the 7 slash 60 days rule, which is if as a bookseller, I, I order it, from the local publisher, if they can't tell me it's available within seven days, or if they don't ship it within six, sixty days, then I can import it in in small quantities. I there's one more exception. So if it's a customer order, you're allowed to import it. So if I I'm a customer, I go to the bookshop and say I want the U.S. edition. Okay. Then they can order it. They're not bound by PIR then. So for me, that that that. Uh, because local printing really can't match the mass market uh, printing because they print in larger print runs, at least if you are international. So on one hand, you, you really can't match that, so books will be more expensive, which would kind of be okay for local booksellers. But right now, I think what's killing local booksellers is the fact that as consumers, okay, I can skip all the local bookstores outright i can just order from a book depository which uh, no, will also give me quote-unquote free shipping it's not really free because whatever discount they get they subtract that from the shipping fee so that also determines what your discount is now actually book depository in australia also has a different relationship or disadvantaged relationship with regards to postage because your postal service has to give low rates to shipments coming from the UK to Australia. I used to work for a Australian publisher at 12 Planet Press. I, okay. I, 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 I did their ebooks. So one of the problems Alisa is facing is the rising cost of, of postage and that's because shipments from the UK to Australia get subsidized by your, your post office. So how do they earn that money back? It's by increasing the, the postage. Domestic rates. Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, that's one. So uh, because of that, consumers can entirely circumvent uh, this entire system and just get it directly from a foreign source like Amazon or, or Book Depository. Now, what happens if you lift uh, the, the ruling? Again, this is where we go into the fortune telling and how much you trust the consumers. Because on one hand, what might end up is w like in the Philippines where the publishing industry really isn't that healthy. Like, Readers might just opt to buy all all foreign import books. Well, I think the fear is not that the readers will buy foreign import books; it's the booksellers will only stock foreign import books because they're cheaper. No, I mean it, it's cause and effect. Like consumers might prefer the booksellers to stock uh, those because uh, they're cheaper. So, uh, I mean th that's one possible scenario. Again, it, it goes back. To, to trust or what, what what will the consumer behavior be? No, because if consumer dictates I'll only buy Australian published books, then the book buyers will still uh, proceed uh, as normal. And then that's a chain reaction of the publishing industry there. And then if 
they have any lo- local presses and uh, any uh, I mean, I think, local talent. I yeah. think there are other problems. So I, I don't know what my position is on this because I, I don't actually know who has a handle on the cause and effect. I think one of the issues is that if the publisher, the local publishers don't get a chance to publish the bestsellers from overseas, they can't count on those sales to offset the losses that they make or the risks that they take on local authors. Yeah, so yeah, that's also another implication. So it's really a complicated problem. Like, if I were looking at it from the perspective of a consumer who doesn't really care about anyone else, then, then I might just... Okay, it doesn't I, matter really either way, as no, long as you give me the cheaper price. Yeah, yeah. Or, or I might even circumvent the booksellers. I might just order everything from book de- a depository right. because, because as a local bookseller, I'm getting the book at the price uh, as a retailer because that, that's what I am. While book depository, I'm not sure. I, I think they might be getting it at, at a distributor price. So that's why they can also price it cheaper. So one scenario is, I'm not saying this is what will happen, is that even if you lift the the anti-parallel uh, Im- import law, it might still kill off the local booksellers because consumer behavior might just be to buy it online where it's cheaper, where it's not taxed, where shipping is cheaper. So it, well, it's a net uh, cheaper price for Because the other consequence for booksellers is that if they buy overseas editions, there's no returns on those books. So in terms of risk, it's it's less risky to stock a local pu- locally published book because there's a returns process. If they do the special orders overseas, I mean, they're stuck with that book and they have to sell it. Yeah, uh, the, 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 uh, again, that's the case here. Uh, like, right now, if you look at National Bookstore, for example, uh, books are actually cheaper compared to the U.S. If a uh, paperback, for example, is $8 in the U.S., here you're actually buying it at 7 or, or 6.5, and that's because they bought it, so they don't have to worry about returns. But that's why you also have those bargain bin sales, which is for unsold stock. But that's also why national bookstores' eggs aren't all in one basket. I don't know if you noticed, but at least before, the rule is like 70% of their profits are selling school supplies. Right. And the, the only well, the other they have the other yeah, school supplies yeah, the last yeah, time I visited. And then the, the other only 30% make up for actual books. And before an interview with, with their with their owner, you know, that's why they, they said that, okay, the reason why we sell school supplies is so that we can sell the books uh, cheaply. Now, Australian book buyers yeah, don't have that backup system. They sell stationery now as well. But then readers complain. They're like, there's more stationery in this bookstore than books. But, you know, but you're like, well, obviously, because they need the money. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's a, really a question of, of cash flow there. So, yeah, th- that, those are uh, other uh, possibilities. So really, it, it depends on, on who you are. I mean, if you're the consumer, then then you might want it lifted uh, if if you're you know the publisher the bookseller or someone involved in the publishing industry because you know it's it could be guaranteed income depending on on the rights you you get i mean i think one of the other issues is that uh it goes back to the point you made about um publishing not being bi-directional depending on where you live yeah. so if you're a local publisher it's actually hard to even compete in the digital space if you're publishing books with a local setting and with local characters. So it, it, it feels, to me, it feels like for them it's always an uphill battle. So without the protections of certain limitations on what booksellers buy from overseas, they like have no, they have no cushion against that systemic bias. Yeah, it's a complicated problem. And really, for me, I, 
if you lift it, I don't know the effect. If I'm a conscientious consumer, it, it might not be as bad. But obviously, if, if but it's But I mean, a... everybody starts off as a conscientious consumer and everybody, almost everybody ends up being sort of, get me the book the easiest way, cheapest way possible. Yeah, and then when it comes to that, you, you'll, you'll go import. Because the other thing the government can't do is yeah, tax or have, can't impose taxes well, on, on, on foreign. Well, tax is the other problem, yeah. right? Well, no, because uh, they can. So if it's going to go through the bookseller, the bookseller has to collect the tax. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. The, the bookseller has to collect tax. But if you're getting it directly from Amazon or from right. the so book I feel depository. Like even, even if you lift PIR and the booksellers are allowed to get the books from overseas, it's still not going to be, the price differential is still going to be there because they're getting taxed. Yeah. So here's a more, I guess, philosophical question. Yeah. Is it fair that we put such a high price on cultural objects? I, I think we we need to pay for intellectual property. And that, right now, that's a dilemma of writers here. They think they should get paid for zero pesos for intellectual property. That's why writers here don't earn. So on that level, I think we have to pay for content and not just the container because right now there's a premium on, on physical products. Because okay, but we, that's, yeah. in one sense, that's okay because if you're talking about local writers and local locally produced objects such as books or films, then everyone, even when people are getting paid more than others, you're kind of on the same currency, you're in the, your playing field is a little bit more even. But when you look at something like that comes out of Hollywood, where the retail price of something is really high compared to how much uh, an average Filipino would spend for entertainment. Does that seem reasonable? My, my, because my, my pet peeve here, it's like people are more interested in paying for the physical container than, than the content. Like I'd say, okay, I pay for that because it's, in, it's a hardcover, but I, I won't pay for an ebook because I'd say it doesn't cost you, you printing. But, but they have to understand that you're not paying for just the printing you're paying for for the writer for for the editing uh, that's that's one component second again as you said because our our incomes are different so i think one solution really is to price it different for each countries and that worked for for the video industry here at least for the foreign video industry and then it also worked for the software like before windows was being pirated I mean, that, that's basic OS software. But when they made it more more affordable, people started adopting the original versions. But then, it, it, do you then need geo-blocking to then I, segregate those markets? I, yeah, I, again, yeah, that, that'll dovetail into the, the, the third one. Pre-internet, it, it was easy to segregate those types of content. And that's why actually the parallel import of Asada work. But in the age of internet, that is the question. Like, I want, I don't know what you call it, but I want customized pricing scheme for my country. So the question is, how do you, uh, how do you uh, enforce that? So that's where, okay, I don't like DRM, but, but if you implement DRM in the right way, that's one of the benefits. And actually, we've seen it in practice in, in two ways. On the negative side, we have Amazon, who has DRM, but people don't care. But for the longest time, until this year, Filipinos were paying two dollars extra for ebooks sold on, on Amazon. It was finally lifted this year, yeah. So if you see, what was that for? What was the two dollar surcharge for? Based on on research, it was their Wi-Fi. Their, this their, is their, their blanket safety. thing, right? Because yeah. we get that too. No, no, no. It was lifted. You you had that for a short time, and then it was eventually gone. 
but uh, but either way, my point is you had a price that was different between each country, and it had DRM. And you know, if you're a shopper for Amazon, you you really didn't care about the DRM. It, you were just concerned that that the price. For me, that's a negative example because it's an inflated price depending on which country. Uh, well, not just you, that. You're, two, you're a two dollar difference in Australia is, is going to affect an Australian reader differently than a two dollar difference in the Philippines. Yeah, on I, a Philippine reader because that two dollars can buy you a lot more stuff. And it actually gets worse. But this is from the publisher side. Like Amazon has the seventy percent royalty, but that only applies if you're if the buyer is from one of twenty nine countries now. So that doesn't include the Philippines. I think you must have been it must have been you that tweeted something like that, which I didn't realize that that was the case. Yeah. So if it's in the seventy percent bracket, but the buyers like outside of those twenty nine countries, like the Philippines, as a publisher, I'm only still getting thirty five percent. Wow, that's huge. So who gets the seventy percent? The Western countries. If the buyer is from from the western, ah, in, in one of the twenty nine right. counts, it's not even where I'm from. It's where the customer is from. Okay. So on one hand, that can be data. Okay, I got more royalties for this. Ah, uh, so so I, I know my so the buyers a, of this. Do you this. have a sense of how they choose those twenty nine countries? Or I think it's Amazon's uh, expansion, and then sometimes it's uh. their incentive. Like in India, to get the seventy percent, you uh, must so be exclusive they... to Amazon. But that's uh. why people. Just like Amazon in general and like iTunes. Like iTunes here, it's seventy percent. No no questions asked. But but there's no iTunes for books in the Philippines. Right. And even music, not all music is available on not all OPM is available on iTunes either. Because I've been trying to buy Filipino music and not all of it is that one might be dependent on the individual uh, record label. They might not have made it uh, available. Possibly, but, I'm old and it's not been digitized digitized properly. So yeah, and, and yeah, and, and I do run into people at least in the book, like you say, okay, I don't want ebooks of my book. I don't want ebooks okay. of my comic. Why is that? The hierarchy is for for physical content. Yeah, I, I do know a, a famous comic artist who said I don't want or my ebooks. Is it fear of piracy? If it's piracy, they'll just say DRM. Because we, uh, at least in the day job, I do have publishers who said we want our books there. That's okay. kind of strange to me because if Wattpad is so popular, that means that the reading market has accepted ebooks. But then if you're still having people who, on the production side, that don't recognize ebooks as, I guess, legitimate. No, no. Uh, but, but Wattpad is different in the sense that one, it's not curated, and two, it, it becomes a pro- promotional tool. Here, you can have the digital version for free. But if you want the physical book, you have no, to pay I for mean, it. Uh, to me, it's more a disparity between readers and producers. The readers welcome the digital products, especially the free ones. I've, I find it interesting that there are still producers of books that prefer not to be in the digital space. Well, well because they're thinking it might cannibalize their sales. Or, it's, or, or even I know it, it's the author themselves who don't want the ebook versions. So for them... They're repricing the tangibility of print. But yeah, and then, sorry, my other example would be like Steam. Steam is a platform for video games. Now, what they recently implemented is, okay, each region, you'll have your own different pricing discount. Like right now, Russia gets the cheapest one, but the next cheapest one would be the Philippines. So if there's a video game that's $20 in the US, it gets sold here for like the equivalent of of $10. So I think uh, that works. But again, you need some way to enforce those uh, uh, those yeah Be- because one abuser before with Steam was the seller would come from Russia, they'd buy it in their local cheap amount, then sell it to someone right. with the with with the smaller markup, 
th than the retail price that they would have uh, in, in, in that country. So that that's one way to to abuse the system. Yeah. So I don't like DRM again, but that's that's one of the advantages if you do have uh, DRM, which is go back goes back to Netflix. Actually, Netflix wants the content accessible everywhere in the world because they're they're charging the same rate anyway. But the problem is, as the content producer, I it's more profitable for me to sell it to different territories. Like, why would I sell it to you once when I can sell it to America once and then to Australia another time and then to the Philippines another time? So I think right now Netflix in the Philippines doesn't have like the flash. Because uh, the rights it, got yeah. sold to... It has to negotiate those rights in every country, right? Yeah, and, and already Hook and iFlix, I right. think, already has the rights to those shows. And yeah, and then Netflix also doesn't have bargaining power with the companies until it can enforce its DRM. That's why it started blocking proxy servers. Right. I mean, they want it available to everyone right now, but as part of their growth, they need to enforce those. They need to show that they're making an effort to yeah. um, curtail abuse, right? Yeah, or otherwise everyone would just use a proxy server and then, yeah. Or right now, US and then some other countries have, or even the, the mean, UK ha have, has the best content. I mean, it's a catch-22, right? You're paying for the service, you're paying the same amount as everyone else in the world, but some people in the world are getting more or better content than you are. But the reason that you can't get the content is not because Netflix doesn't want to give it to you. It's yeah. just it's just legal stuff that you can't get around. It also goes back to authors like, uh, like if I can sell the rights, like, like for me, I want as a consumer, I want authors when they come out with the ebook, I want them to have world rights so that I can buy the ebook. But as an author, to maximize profitability, it's better for me to sell like the US rights and then sell the UK rights. Does that happen rather in digital the world. though? I mean I Yeah it it, it, it does depending on, on the publisher. Right. Not normally the publisher will ask like for world rights. But if the author or their agent thinks they can sell it the rights again to a different country, then they they'll want to limit it. And for me it's also advisable you my, my advice to content creators is it's to give your your publisher less Authority. Only uh, give away as much as you need to at any given time. Uh, right? Yeah, and, and, and unless they compensate you uh, accordingly, because the opposite end is there, because that one is royalty based. So as long as like you're get getting as much royalties from sales worldwide, then, then go. But sometimes authors are able to negotiate better rates from overseas publishers. Like I know some mid-list authors who only do so so in the U.S. But when they sell their German rights, that's where it becomes really popular. Yeah, there's something popular. about Germany. Because even in, bro in Australian fiction, there are some types of fiction that sell really well in Germany. Yeah, and, and Germany is actually a very big... We don't perceive it as a big consumer of books, but they really have a large... Mar it's one of the top 20 or even the top 6 countries that, that buys uh, so, books. So for Filipino-published books... Are there any foreign markets that are more uh, lucrative for those authors? Not right now. Uh, like in the US or in the UK, you have this system of major publishers only accepting submissions from agents who, because they're testing, they're, they've already curated the content. Now here, we don't have that system. Like Authors directly submit to publishers. It's only now that we have our first agent who's based in the Philippines, which is Andrea Pachon Flores, who works for Jacaranda. But 
as far as I know, she's the only Filipino agent. So we have no process. I mean, that's kind of foreign to ro romance. Is used to unagent submissions as well. So yeah. that's a little we're a little bit unusual in that sense. Yeah. But okay, so what, I think what you're saying is there's been no one to negotiate those rights to begin with. Yeah, and to sell those. Right, right now, what's happening is we go to the Frankfurt Book Fair, and because the publisher owns all the rights, so they're the ones who right. who does okay, so the, the, the negotiating. Yeah, right. who, who does the uh, negotiating. Do you think that's better then? Does it make the industry more robust to have a stronger pool of agents? It, it depends on whose perspective because as an individual author, it's better for me to have my agent there because, because I did not surrender all my rights to the publisher. Now, because with, with local publishers, if they have all the rights, then they might sell it and sell it and sell it, but the author might n never see a dime because, I, again, Depending on, on, on the agreement, agreement yeah. Them. Depending on the agreement, like if the if the publisher has full copyright, then as an author, you're you're not gonna get anything anymore. Just the case in the comics before with with Jack Kirby. Oh, or, you mean like outright buy the rights instead uh, of just publishing rights? Yes. Right. So that that's my issue with some of the publishers of Wattpad authors because they're new. They and they, they sign up there. Yeah, signed. yeah. If it's just publishing rights, then okay. I mean, you'll still earn from the others. But, but, but right now, so some publishers have the full publishing rights in all languages. So if they sell a German translation or a Chinese translation or a Spanish translation, the royalty I'm getting as an author would, might still be the same, while right. the publisher might have got, gotten a, a better deal. Right. That's why normally, at least as an author, uh, I want the agent to negotiate for me. But of course, if I'm the publisher, then the more, the, right. yeah, the, the, the more rights I have, then uh, the, the better. That's all we have time for in this episode. Huge thanks to our tireless audio producer, Rudy Brenner. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 28. If you enjoyed the episode, you can help support us by leaving a review on iTunes or just telling all your reader friends to give us a try. You can also visit bookthingo.com.au to check out reviews and opinions from a bunch of readers down under, including me and Rudy. In the next episode, I chat with Honey De Peralta, Penguin Random House Sales Manager for Southeast Asia. Honey and I actually went to school together, lost touch, and reconnected through books. If you want to know the story behind that, make sure you tune in to the next episode. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading.